Floyd Landis, the first Tour de France winner in the race's history to have his title stripped away. At that point, I hadn't wrapped my head around what was actually happening. Landis rode with Lance Armstrong on the U.S. Postal Service team before leaving for Team Phonak and winning his own Tour de France title. It was worth doing for winning the race. Days later, Landis tested positive for doping, but claims he had to deny it. Once I tell the story about Lance, I'm not getting back into cycling. It's just not going to happen. Landis explains the widespread doping during his time in cycling. I was wrong, they're wrong, everyone's wrong. And why it took him so long to come clean. How else did you justify your legal battle? I was mad at them, I was mad at cycling, but I couldn't. If I admit it, I'm done. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I want to take you way back to when you were growing up back in the day. What was life like for you growing up? It was a lot more simple than the life I got now. It was a, I grew up with a, a wonderful family. My mom and dad are, uh, they're Mennonites. Uh, it's, a, it's a religion, a Christian religion, uh, sort of centered in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And uh, I have four sisters and a brother, and we had a simple life. We'd go to church on Sundays and, and ate dinner together, and we didn't have a TV or a radio, and so it was about family. and and simple things. And that was interesting because you didn't have a TV or radio, yet you had electricity and the car. What was the reasoning behind having those and not the other? <laughs> There's a, a range of, of religions that most people know as Amish. Um, the Mennonite religion is quite similar to that. And there's uh, various churches, and some have different rules, and ours just was okay with um, cars and electricity. I think that the, the way these rules came to be is that the, um, the, the Mennonite religion was the original religion uh, from which Amish split off at some point, and their goal was to keep things simple and to avoid, um, avoid technology at the risk of uh, being distracted from the religion itself. And so over the last, you know, 200 years, um, they just sort of, some have changed a little and changed the rules, but there isn't, there isn't a good reason that I can give you for that. What was an average day like for you then? Uh, as a kid, I'm, it wasn't entirely different than, than any other kid. I'm, I, we did spend a lot of time in church. We'd often have Bible schools that would last for a few weeks in the summer and the winter. Uh, my parents liked to go to church on Wednesday nights. And so what would the religious activities that you would do in an average week entail? Uh, we'd go to church several times a week. Okay. Um, to me, church was pretty boring. We didn't have a very exciting way of conducting a church service. I mean, there was no music, there was no, there was singing, but there was no instruments. Um, they didn't have particular activities for kids. It was just all about learning about the Bible. And so, um, <laughs> it was probably counterproductive to what they were hoping for. All, all it did for me was it taught me to focus on what was in my head rather than what was going on around me. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably benefited you <laughs> yeah, later I guess on in life with sport. <laughs> yeah, in the long run, but uh, I could sit through several hours of a church service and not hear anything. <laughs> uh, tell me about the first time you saw the movie Jaws when you were growing up. Uh, yeah, I think that was the first movie I ever saw and I was at a a friend's house. How old were um, you then? I think I was seven or eight, okay. probably. I was really young. And I, I think I laid awake the whole night, just completely traumatized by it. 
I mean, I knew in my head it wasn't real. They were telling me it wasn't real, but to me it looked real. And the, the other kids that I was with, the surprising part to me was they, they didn't seem to care, but I didn't realize that they had sort of been eased into this whole television thing, and they thought it was good to watch a movie like this at night. I didn't like it. I couldn't wait to go home. What was the first movie you saw in the theater? I saw the movie The Lion King. I think it was in 1993 uh, or four, maybe, in the theater. <laughs> How old were you I hate then? to admit that. Uh, I was 18 or 19. Okay. What role did the bicycle play in your adolescence? It, it was my way of, uh, riding a bike was my way of, uh, it was therapy for me, I would say. I would go ride and, and think, and, and I was kind of, uh, because my parents sent me to a public school, which um, as they were growing up, the Mennonite community was completely removed from the rest of society. Uh, but as I was growing up, it became more of a suburb of Philadelphia. Not that it really was, but we, I went to a public school where most of the kids were not Mennonites, uh, which was not the same as when my parents grew up. So I was exposed to a lot of things over those years that didn't really reconcile with what I was told in church and by my parents. And so I was a bit, um, I was a bit conflicted in my head. What role did the bicycle in your adolescence? I went to a public school where most of the kids were not Mennonites, um, which was not the same as when my parents grew up. So I was exposed to a lot of things over those years that didn't really reconcile with what I was told in church and by my parents. And so I was a bit, um, I was a bit conflicted in my head. And riding a bike to me was a way to, to exert some energy and focus on something else sometimes, and other times it was a way of just riding around and, and trying to sort through in my head what I really thought about life and what I really believed. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it served several purposes. If I didn't want to think, I'd ride as hard as I could, and then I was too tired to think, and if I wanted to think, then, then I would just sort of ride around and think, but I could be alone and I could, I could sort of take it all in. What did you wear uh, to your first race when you were 15? Well, my parents, uh, in the Mennonite religion, at least the one that, in which I grew up, um, they're pretty conservative about clothes, and so I wasn't allowed to wear shorts uh, to school and things like that, and, and the women dress, they only wear dresses. And so, uh, the first, yeah, the first few mountain bike races I did, I wore sweatpants, which are not functional for bike races at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it. But it was just a matter of sort of in some small way respecting my parents, but eventually I realized you can't race a bike and wear sweatpants. How about gym class? Uh, yeah, I wasn't, I was really asked by my parents not to wear shorts, so I ended up wearing either long jeans or, or sweatpants in gym class. How much were you teased? Uh, a lot. As a, I felt like it was a lot as a kid, and, and you know, in hindsight I don't really know if it was excessive. Kids can be mean to each other, it's just the way it is. And I was a little different because I was one of the few Mennonite kids at the school. I mean, of a few, I mean, out of a thousand people, probably there was three or four. So to me, I felt singled out and I felt like I was not really part of it. But how well do you remember what the teases were about? You know, I don't really stop and think about it too much, but it was, it was more just I dressed differently and, and I thought differently, too, because I didn't as far as socializing and, and things like that, I didn't have the same reference points. I didn't, I didn't have a television, so when kids talked about what they saw on TV, 
I just couldn't be part of it. So I just sort of felt removed and I didn't really try to, I didn't put too much energy into trying to fit in. My way of dealing with it was I'll go home and ride my bike and I'll be all right. I know your parents were supportive, very supportive of you to the extent they would take you to races, things of that nature, but I mean, it was pretty clear apparently that they thought you were going to fail and they wanted to get you to find a real job, a regular job. So if that was the case, how then do you find the confidence to continue pursuing your dreams? The thing about what they believed in, in their motivation for telling me um, to find something else to do was not, it wasn't them trying to say that they didn't believe I would succeed at it. I mean, okay. they had every reason to believe that. In fact, I, I remember my father telling me many times as a kid that if I really wanted to do something, I could do it, no matter okay. what it was. He was adamant about that, and he was, like I say, they're, I had wonderful parents. I mean, it, he would never let me say I couldn't do something if I wanted to do it. Um, and they would never discourage me from doing something by saying that I couldn't do it. Uh, their motivation was more uh, one of, they thought it, it was going to be a, a source of conflict with, with the, the religious beliefs that they had. And, and also just, it's, they're not sports fans. They're not, they're not exposed to that. They don't, really care for professional sports and so for that reason they just thought it was not time well spent not so much that I couldn't do it and when you say conflict with the religion I mean to what extent did they basically tell you because based on the religion that if you kept racing your bike you were gonna go to hell well you know until I was probably 17 or 18 um, when I went to the first bike race on Sunday I never missed a Sunday of church I mean they believed 100% that Sunday is a day of rest and you should go to church on Sunday morning and it didn't matter if you were sick, it didn't matter what came along, you better be there, that's just the way it is. And so for that reason and various others, bicycle racing doesn't really, doesn't really fit with that schedule. I mean, often the bike races, if there's a, if there's a one day race, they're often on the Sunday. Um, but you have various races that are weeks long and three weeks long and those races you really can't be focused on what they believe you should focus on, which is worshiping God and going to church on Sundays. And so uh, it just didn't make sense to them how you could do one and, and still have the other. What ultimately did lead to you really beginning to question your religion? In the big picture, there's 8 billion people in this world, and I realized that they, they can't, first of all, they don't all believe the same thing, and most of them will never be exposed to it. And so to believe that... Um, to believe that this must this is the only right way to live and that everyone else is wrong and everyone else is going to go to hell i mean such an extreme punishment for something that they couldn't otherwise have known just didn't make any sense to me and i thought that i needed to spend some time seeing the world for myself and trying to figure out if this was really what i should spend my entire life being um, obsessed with which is what i mean really i would use that word in the mennonite religion that's what it is it's, life is all about religion Tell me about the above-ground pool, uh, what it was stocked with and what you guys would do. Oh, as I was growing up, I had some cousins who were, uh, for lack of a better word, white trash. <laughs> and, yeah, they had a lot of things. They had some snowmobiles in pieces laying around outside. They had a pool. And at one point, they put some fish in it and, uh, yeah, went fishing in it. <laughs>
I'm not, I'm not really sure why, but I'll tell you, if you don't have uh, video games as a kid and you have to just figure out what to do, you come up with some good ideas. How about hunting from the aluminum boat? Yeah, my dad had this bright idea that he would uh, make squirrel hunting easier by just getting a boat, and so we would float <laughs> down the river. And to me, it sort of took away from the fun, because I like to be out and walking around the woods, but my dad thought it was easier if we just sit there. But <laughs> it sort of isn't fair. I mean, it's really not fair anyway you're shooting squirrels, but when they can't hear you coming from the boat, it just becomes a joke. How successful <laughs> are you guys? Quite successful, but the problem then is you end up with a bunch of squirrels that you have to clean, and I didn't really like squirrels in the first place. You made good use of it though, right? Well, yeah, we ate them, but I didn't, they're not that good. Have you eaten squirrel? No. Yeah, don't. I'll take your word. <laughs> <laughs> so at 17, uh, you had 17 years old, you go to France as part of the uh, US team competing in the world championships. Uh, I understand you had some fun with Roman candles? Well, the first, see, what happened was, <laughs> 1993, I'd done some uh, few races a year, small local races up until that year, mountain bike races these were. And I convinced my dad to take a couple friends of mine and I to Michigan. The, the, um, the national championships were in Michigan, and I was in the junior category at that point. And the winner um, got a trip paid for to go to the world championships, and then that, that year they were in France. And so I had never, well, I ended up winning the national championships. And I had never been on an airplane before. I'd never been anywhere. And so I ended up getting on a plane and flying to, to France. And I met all these other kids, or, or just there was a bunch of professionals there as well, but there was 10 or 12 other kids in different categories. Um, the entire, I would say the entire experience, my first time in France, was pretty traumatic. I, didn't, I wasn't prepared for any of it. I didn't know. I just didn't know anything about it. I got on a plane and I ended up at some place where everything was foreign, literally. And I was really obsessed with my bike at that point. I really wanted to be professional. And a lot of the kids that get involved in cycling at that age are, are often encouraged to do so by their parents who are also into cycling. And so to them, it was more of a fun trip. We're going to go race the world championships and drink beer because there's no drinking age. And, and the entire thing to me was, uh, ended up not being about bicycle racing at all. By the time the race came along, I was just exhausted because I don't think I slept and I didn't really like the food and I was just trying to figure out what was actually going on. Um, but we did have some fun. One friend of mine, his name was Michael Riley, and I, the one junior kid that I got along with really well, um, he and I found some, <laughs> so what we thought were Roman candles. We thought they were fireworks at the little local store. We stayed in this little town about 15 miles from where the race was. Um, but we couldn't read what the warning said. It was in French, so we just thought we would put them on the street and light them. But they turned out, I don't know what they were. They turned out to be dynamite of some kind. I don't know why they sell these at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> but uh, the first, few, first time we did it, we were not prepared for it at all. So we had to go run and hide and pretend we didn't know what happened. We got a lot of questions, but we, no one figured out it was us. But then it just became fun because then we knew what we were doing. So we spent some time as terrorists. How about the most afraid? you've ever been? I think the most fear I ever, real fear I ever had was the first year that I did the Tour de France. 200 guys and they're all the best shape of the year and they're all winning one stage in that race it can make someone's career. And so the intensity that they, that they race is so much greater in the, in, in the amount of fans around it and the amount of things going on and just, just chaos that I wasn't quite prepared for. 
um, left me a little bit distracted and it took me a little while to, to adjust to that. There was too many helicopters flying over us and too many people yelling. It was like a war. It was the sounds and then just the speed and, and everything. And the way people were riding, the aggressive style of riding, I was afraid. To, for at least the first 10 days, I was afraid. Really? The entire time, yeah. Excuse me. I mean, it made me focus. I was so afraid that I realized that if I didn't pay attention, I was going to get hurt and probably hurt some other people. It taught me a, a good deal about focus. I mean, I thought it was focused up to that point in races, but this one was different. This one takes a whole different level. And you said when we had dinner that when you were able to get past that, get past that fear, it made all the difference in the world, right? Right. Well, at some point I decided that, and I really had to stop and think because I, I would get done with the stages and I was literally afraid. I didn't crash, but I was sure I was going to at some point and, and it was completely out of my control because it was decisions that people were making around me. I decided that this was my goal and this was my dream and if I was going to be here and I was going to be taking these risks, I might as well just accept it and stop being afraid and just stay focused and just I might as well be the, the best I can be at it. And if I'm going to be here and taking these risks, um, I either got to accept that that's what they are or just quit because I can't just ride around being afraid. I won't get anything out of it. I'll end up losing all the time and I won't, no good will come of that, right? So I finally just taught myself to sort of pretend that, just pretend it was a war. Just pretend that there's a chance I get killed, but this is what I have to do. I have to be here because this is what I decide I'm going to do. And eventually I stopped being afraid and the risk didn't change at all, but I just accepted it. And once I did that, I think that separated me from a lot of the other guys there because I don't think a lot of them ever learned that. Explain what's involved with riding 24,000 miles in a year on a bike. I can do it because I have how talent, but... How many people can? How many people do? I don't know how many people do it, but I know that that's what you have to do if you want to be a professional and want to win the Tour de France. You can be a professional and ride less, but if you really want to win, uh, there's an amount of time you have to spend riding your bike, and, and it's more than seems reasonable. How's the body able to handle that, that type of, that level of mileage? If you want to be able to, to win the Tour de France, you have to be able to ride nearly 30 hours a week and 30 hours a week ride hard for months out of the year and still recover from it and I think just about anybody that's that's physically healthy can ride 30 hours a week if they put a little training in but not very many people can ride hard that amount of time and the only way to find out if you can do it I guess is to try but it's what distinguishes the people that, that can get to the very top of the sport and those that can be professionals but aren't going to win. How mental do you think the sport is? It's entirely physical up until the point where you have to be able to make critical decisions in order to win a race and then it becomes mental. So uh, without the physical part, it doesn't matter if you have the psychological part, right? You have to do a certain amount of training. You have to do put a certain amount of time into it. Um, and then there's people that do that, and, and when they get to the point where uh, they have to perform under pressure, they can't do it. So then it's all mental to them, but the two are completely separate. I mean, it's hard for me to put a, put a number on how much of it is mental because I see them as two entirely different things. How much would you toy with competitors 
during your race? Uh, if I was in a position to win, I would, I mean, I think, a, I think a lot of people would, a lot of guys who win big races would um, not try to allow other people to know how you're feeling or what you're, what you're going to do next. So that part of it too becomes psychological, but first you have to get there and you also have to be able to perform on the day you have to, you have to perform. And that's what makes professional sports of, of every kind to me intriguing because uh, there's so much involved and there's so many, so many different uh, nuances that people don't see apart from just the physical performance that they're watching um, that are required for someone to actually be able to perform at the top. That um, to me, it's it's what make what make professional sports beautiful. In terms of talent, what do you think are the biggest factors that separate the cyclists and the peloton? It's, it's hard for me to put a number on how many people are physically talented enough to win the Tour de France, for example. There's not very many. There's probably 10 in any given year. Um, and then it comes down to how much, how much uh, commitment they have throughout the rest of the year to what they're doing and how much focus they have during the race and how much they allow the things that are going on around them in, in the given moment that they have to perform to affect them. If they're, uh, if they're easily distracted or they're intimidated or, or anything, then, then they, they can't do it. Um, which is why you see guys that often win multiple tours. I mean, they don't look like they're that much better and they don't win the race by that much, but they have, they have some small thing um, or some small way they're superior. They, often it comes down to a psychological thing at that point. The fastest you've gone downhill on a bike would be what? <clears throat> you don't, you know, you don't r rarely go as fast as 60 miles an hour, often more than 50, um, but 55 is probably the fastest you can really go without going straight down a mountain. I mean, straight down. Hills aren't often steep enough to go any faster than that. It's scary. I mean, you don't want to crash at that speed because you're not wearing any protection really apart from the helmet. Um, and it probably looks more scary than it feels when you're doing it. Uh, my biggest fear in, in the races was always the people around me. I was perfectly confident in my skills and, and the risk of something mechanically going wrong didn't really ever cause me too much anxiety. But when there was other people around me, I didn't trust them. They scared me. The hip. Uh, how did you hurt it? Well, it was one of my less uh, proud moments riding a bike. I mean, I fell all by myself. I don't crash very often. <laughs> and I just made a mistake in training. And I hit some sand and, and the front wheel slid out and I fell really hard on my right hip. I probably crashed 100 times in my life and I've never broken anything um, except for that. And when that happened, were you aware something was definitely wrong? Uh, when I tried to move it, it was the most excruciating pain I'd ever felt. I never hurt. Nothing's ever hurt that bad in my entire life. Um, but I knew it was something wasn't connected anymore. I mean, my leg didn't work. I didn't know it was going to be such a long, drawn-out ordeal. Uh, but I knew something wasn't right. How did it gradually worsen over time? It's not that uncommon. Uh, with a badly broken hip that three or four years later um, a replacement is required. And I was told that at the time it was broken, but um, 
there wasn't anything really that I could do about it apart from uh, I was told that the odds of it uh, of it surviving would be better if I didn't do anything if I didn't ride but I wasn't at that point I wasn't in the mind frame to to walk away I just I just gotten to, to com compete in the first Tour de France um, that I ever done in 2002 uh, this was January 2003 that it happened and so I decided I understood the risk um, I would start training again and and uh, and take that risk. In hindsight, I, I'd probably do the same thing. I really don't think that there was much chance that my hip would have been fine either way. What types of things did it immediately and or gradually prevent you from doing? End of 2004, I got some x-rays done and it was clear that it was starting to deteriorate and that it was gonna, at some point at least, need to be replaced. Uh, it's a slow process and so nobody could really tell me how long it would last from there. And also, by last, I mean uh, the advice is just keep using it until the pain becomes unbearable, which, I mean, is not very good advice because you can put up with pain forever if you have to. Um, so you have to just make a judgment of what you're willing to deal with. Um, so for me, I, I was able to race two more years after that. Your doctor recalls one time you coming back from a tour stage and just saying the pain's so bad you literally wanted to vomit. Uh, how bad did that pain get? By 2006, it was it was really bad, and racing was worse on it because the intensity of the ride and and I don't think I could have well I couldn't have raced another season with it. I, it had to be replaced. While I was racing, was the least amount of pain I had as far as my hip goes. But all, as soon as I would stop the stage or, or the race was finished, then then there was that to think about and. I, it was becoming bad, it was keeping me awake at night. I thought there was an interesting thing your then doctor said, who was also the team physician for the San Diego Chargers in uh, the NFL, he said, quote, uh, if I were a betting man and you showed me Landis's x-rays, I would bet my house that he could not be competitive in the Tour de France. This is the hip of a guy who, if he were just a weekend warrior, would have problems with everyday living, but to be a top athlete where a 1% performance loss is a big deal, no way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the x-rays did look pretty bad and, and it did hurt a lot, but I didn't, the problem was I didn't know if I'd be able to race with a, with a hip replacement. And that was really the only solution and so. So the mindset kind of was get everything you can out of this hip because you didn't know if that was it. Right, that was that was really, in my mind, that was my only choice. I, I, I'd worked for 15 years now and I finally have a team where I can be the leader and I have a chance to win the Tour de France and I gotta just deal with the pain. I can't, I can't just walk away now. I have to deal with it no matter how much it hurts. To what extent do you wonder how effective a cyclist you would have been able to be with the new hip? The way it is now, and and knowing how long it took to to do the re, the rehab on it, I don't think that it would have any downside at all having a hip replacement. In fact, I think I would have done it. In, in hindsight, I would have done it sooner. I would have done it in two thousand five. Um, but I didn't know at the time, and and there's always complications with surgery. It's always good to avoid it if you can, and so I did what I knew at the time. How would you describe the feeling of being asked for the first time to be part of a team that would be competing in the Tour de France? Well, for, for me, um, I can't speak for other people because the circumstances were, certainly would have been different, but for me, I, was, I felt extremely fortunate and also 
nervous because I was being asked to race on the tour team for a guy that had already won three tours of France and and I, I was nervous at that time, but I think I was even more nervous when the race started because I realized how much harder it was and how much how much pressure there was on us to perform and, and what we were actually going through. So those were some of the more nervous months of my life, yeah. I mean, I can say that a lot of the things that I did for the first time, even though I hadn't done them and might have seemed surprising considering where I'd come from, I just sort of did them and I wasn't nervous. But this time it was I was supposed to be helping Lance. And it wasn't just about me, so I was I was scared. How well do you recall that conversation where he asked you to be part of the team? Pretty well. I, the, the, first, the conversation I had with him was he was not quite so, um, he was not quite so sure in his decision. He told me that, uh, just to give you some context, he and, and Johan Runiel was the director of the team. They would be the ones to decide together. Um, Johan was the one that made the phone call to me to tell me about it, but um, I had been training with Lance for um, a month at that point, a month and a half in San Moritz in Switzerland, and um, he had told me that I was assuming that I didn't get sick or something had happened. The way I was riding, I would end up racing in the Tour de France, and even though it had been my dream and something I wanted to do, I, I got nervous because I... <laughs> I didn't want to be the guy that they, they bring for the first time. And the problem with cycling is your teammates can actually cause a disaster. I mean, you're, you're riding in front of the guy trying to help him. You can be the guy that ends his race. So, And, and this isn't just the Tour de France, which is unbelievable in and of itself. It's Tour with Lance Armstrong. Right, and we, we're expected to win. And yeah, it was, The U.S. Postal Service team is like the Yankees of cycling. Right, they had won three in a row already. and. I really wanted to go. I mean, I, I would normally, whatever the circumstances, been able to just sort of rule out my nerves and stay focused on what I was doing. But for some reason, this was bigger than that. It, it was it was the ultimate goal. I mean, this was this was it. And sometimes you work and you work and you get to the point where you're just about to make it, and then you get nervous. And that's kind of how it was. So your first tour, you end up finishing the Tour de France, which doesn't always happen when it's your first time you end up finishing 61st and you said you just were wrecked after the race what did you feel like yeah I, I was I, I'd never been that exhausted and that tired in my life I mean I'd never after about 10 days um, and the, equi was, the equivalent is basically running a marathon a day for three weeks pretty much, right? Right, yeah, I mean, the equivalent amount of exercise. I've never run a marathon, but I can imagine it's gotta be at least as hard as a tour stage. Uh, I got through about 10 days where I wasn't completely fatigued in each day, even though I was kind of scared about what I was doing. I wasn't, I wasn't so tired that I didn't think I could go on. But the last half of the race, every day I would wake up and I would think there's no way I can finish it, but I'll just, put one foot in front of the other, I'll get up and I'll go eat breakfast and <laughs> I'll get on my bike and then if I can't do it, I can't do it. Um, and I got through it, but uh, I didn't feel well for m months, I think. I months? Felt, I felt ill, yeah. Really? Why? I was just exhausted, I mean, m mentally and physically and... What physical condition were you in post-race? Well, I was 
probably 10 pounds lighter than when I started. And you're like 5'10", right? Yeah, I probably started at 150 pounds. I was close to 140 pounds at the end. And I, um, yeah, I just didn't feel well. I, it hurt to get up in the morning. And you, <laughs> and you at 5'10", 140 pounds, I mean, you had to look like you were starving yourself. I was, yeah, I was really skinny. <laughs> Lance Armstrong. What do you most respect about him? His focus and his determination. I mean, he's, uh, this is what I was trying to, to get across when I was talking about the, the first time I did the Tour de France in the first 10 days and how, how hard it is to stay focused on what you're doing considering everything that's going on around you. Add that to the fact that each time you win, the pressure becomes greater and the, and the people that are also trying to win are gonna become more determined and, and do more things to try to beat you. To do that seven times is, that's a guy that you can't, psychologically, you can't hurt him. You wrote in your book, quote, Lance had his own way of being a jerk to the peloton to get what he wanted. Explain that. In cycling, and I imagine it's this way in a lot of sports, the guys at the top have their way of staying at the top. And his way was, he liked to be intimidating. He liked people to be afraid of him. And, and it wasn't as if he went around doing things uh, intentionally to try to, try to look like a bully. But if he felt like somebody did something that was gonna affect him or got in his way, he made sure they knew about it. He made sure that they understood that he believed he belonged in the front or that he believed that they should stay out of his way. How so? He would just say it a lot of the time or push people out of the way. I mean, he was, he was a bully. Um, that's not my personality. That's not how I would, would have done things, but that's his way of doing it and, and it worked for him. I mean, he didn't have a lot of friends. You also wrote in your book, quote, for Lance, it was basically a war. And sometimes it wasn't even a war to win. It was a war to inflict suffering. How? The, the difference between Armstrong and I is he got satisfaction out of making people lose. He likes to, to see people lose. I got satisfaction out of winning, and it didn't really have anything else to do with other people. I mean, I'm sympathetic to them. I've been in their position before. But for his whole life, he's always been at the top. From the time he was 16, 17, he was, he was always treated as if he was royalty in the sport. And so for whatever reason, whether it's a personality thing or, or or the, just the way he thinks, his satisfaction in winning is not in winning itself. It's in it's in making sure other people don't win, and I I can't relate to that. Why? Do you have any idea why? No, but it's not a pleasant human being to be around. You you said in your book that he would never allow anyone to ever goof around on the team, even if it was in the off time. What was the reasoning for that? He, he liked to be in complete control of whatever situation he found himself in. And so if he wasn't the guy telling the joke, you didn't laugh. If he wasn't the guy talking, nobody talked. Um, it, again, it was his team. Uh, he, he, he was perfectly allowed to run it that way. And, and while I was there, I respected that, but I couldn't wait to get out of there once I realized what it was actually going to be like. I mean, it, once the, the novelty of being on the tour team with Lance wore off, I didn't have any desire to stay. And why did you begin getting frustrated with how the team sort of revolved around Lance? Well, because the team revolved around Lance in such a way that it prevented anyone else from making 
themselves from get for getting any real results for themselves um, and I guess I just expected that for the team that claimed to be the best team in the world and, and when you were trying to get a, a job with them or when they were negotiating with you made it seem as though you, you should be honored to be on the team um, I thought that the, there would be a minimal amount of, of um, you know treatment from them that would be expected and that would be we could at least hope to have the best bicycles we could hope to have the best access to to whatever we needed to win and, and if we were at a race and, and Lance wasn't there it was almost like it didn't matter if anybody won the race they didn't really care and at some point I decided that that wasn't good enough for me and I mean I know it's not that way on other teams they don't have somebody that's that overly controlling and overly uh, goes that far out of their way to make sure that they're the only one that gets any of the credit. Um, and I just became unhappy with it. I, I was ready to leave. Um, th there never really would have been any conflict, excuse me, but for the fact that um, when I wanted to leave, um, they demanded that I stay. And so that was being, I was being um, somehow um, disloyal to them for wanting to leave in the first place when the fact is I, I did my job better than they could ever have hoped and I and I I worked through the end of my contract as well as anybody could have expected and uh, that was that resulted in some some real tension between Lance and I and, and I never really got over it never really forgave him for it and he never really wanted to be my friend after that so feelings I guess is mutual you spoke about his mindset and how he could be an unpleasant person to be around how would you describe his personality He's a bully. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him any credit other than that. Why? He, he, feel, he has a sense of entitlement that defies any kind of reason. I've never met anyone like it, and I don't hope to meet anyone else like it. Where do you think it comes from? I don't even care. What do you recall from your training sessions with him? Well, the first year, the first year I was there on the team in, in 2002, uh, I spent a lot of time just he and I training. Um, we went to uh, San Moritz for probably two months before the tour in 2002. And I enjoyed it at that time. When it was just he and I, he would, when you're training that hard, you're often focused on that. And if there was something to talk about, about the racing, things like that, if, if I had a question, he'd give me advice. But. Right, you're just getting into the right. elite ranks of cycling and right. you're so there was training a lot for with Lance Armstrong. Yeah, and there was a lot for me to learn. I, there was, it was, uh, to me there was a, a novelty that, oh, that overwhelmed the, the fact that it wasn't really just any fun, but I was learning a lot, that's what I wanted. Was a negative personality trait that glaring then too? In hindsight, yeah, but I didn't notice it and I didn't, I think I was, I still had this I guess I still believed a lot of the story whatever that story is uh, what but, you got from reading the book right what what everyone else know what everyone else knows about the story he's created um, but I yeah over time I just didn't find it pleasant in 2003 tell about the time you're stopped by customs agents at an airport in Switzerland. Yeah, we had flown, uh, 
I believe we had flown from Spain, Lance and I. Um, and he had a little duffel bag full of a bunch of syringes and things like that, some EPO. I do know that because he was Lance Armstrong, a lot of rules really didn't apply to him. For example, once I remember flying back into Spain with him, and uh, of course we always flew on a private jet, and so we fly into the little airport in, in Girona, Spain, where we lived. Um, and it was my wife at the time, and my daughter, and his two kids, and his wife. And so we walked up to where the customs guy was at the window, and he didn't stop. He just kept on walking. And the guy, the guy said, hey, I need your passport. And he said, no, no, we don't do that. And then the guy noticed who he was, and he said, OK, you guys can go. He just kept walking. And that's how it was for Lance. I mean, he, I remember him getting really, really angry one time because he actually got a ticket in Austin. He was proud of the fact that he would get pulled over all the time for breaking the law and never get a ticket. And he was absolutely furious that someone had the nerve to give him a ticket. So the fact that he flew with drugs in a bag, I think to him didn't seem like it was going to be an issue. Uh, the customs guys were looking through it, and it was clear on their faces they thought something was out of the ordinary. And they started asking questions, but he didn't speak Swiss German or Swiss French, whatever they speak, and I can't remember what language it was. Um, so we had one of the team uh, employees, his name was um, Yogi, his name was George, he went by Yogi. Uh, he's Swiss. They had him come in. He was supposed to pick us up at the car, and he explained to them that it was a bunch of vitamins and that they should quit asking questions, and eventually they decided it wasn't worth the hassle, and they just let us go. But like I say, uh, some of the things that, that, he, that he did and the stories that I have, they might sound ludicrous that he would take risks like that, but the rules, as much as he didn't believe they applied to him, really most of the time didn't apply to him. During the 2003 cycling season also, why did he want to have you stay at his apartment in Spain? Well, during the three years that I was on the team, we, during the Tour de France only, uh, I shouldn't say only, I also did the, the Vuelta a España, which is a three-week stage race, just like the Tour de France, but it's a Spanish version. Uh, for those races, we would do blood doping, so we would remove some blood and save it in, in a refrigerator. We had a special medical refrigerator that had the had a little um, readout on it, like a just the temperature, and so they would keep the temperature at around two degrees or three degrees Celsius. And um, he wanted to go train in San Moritz, and it just happened that that's the year that I was coming back from my hip, um, my hip surgery, and my fractured hip. And so I wasn't riding quite as well, and they didn't want me to go do the, the difficult training camp uh, at that time in San Moritz. And so since I was going to be in Girona, where he lived anyway. Um, he asked that I stay in his apartment just to make sure that nothing happened with the refrigerator. He said, just check the temperature a couple times a week and make sure that the electricity doesn't go off because even though they're packed, the blood bags were packed with uh, like ice packs, so the temperature would remain more constant if the electricity did shut off. It's still a risk, and, and if something happens, I mean, it's unlikely, but since someone was there, why not have someone watching it? So if something happens and the electricity goes back on, you would never have a way of knowing that the blood was not stored properly until you use it, in which case you would probably get sick. I mean, you wouldn't die, but it wouldn't be good. And you certainly wouldn't want to do it in the middle of a race. So he just said, feel free to stay at my apartment, just make sure that nothing really goes wrong. And so um, it was nice. I mean, his apartment was $3 million, and mine was 1000 bucks a month, so I was happy. And on the bus in 2004, uh, it was on a remote alpine road that the team bus stopped. Explain the situation and what happened. You know, a lot of these stories that I have in my head, I hadn't ever really told them because 
even though the people around me that needed to know, I made sure they knew I was doing things. I didn't go into detail about it because a lot of the times it didn't, it seemed so removed from reality. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't deluding myself into thinking that no one, that, that everybody knew that these things were going on behind the scenes. It still felt strange to me that we would be going to such extremes to do what we were doing. And, and this every, is during the 2004 Tour de France. Yeah, right. Well, so to get back to that, during that race, um, well, during each progressive tour that I had done with Lance, um, the staff and the doctors and, and the team themselves became more and more paranoid that something was going to happen, the police were going to find out or somebody was watching. Um, because in any given year in cycling, some, something happens in Europe. I mean, it may not be reported here, but the police would show up at a race in Italy or something like that and raid the hotels. and so. They became more and more concerned that some somebody was going to find some evidence of this because it does leave physical evidence. I mean, there's equipment that you need to do it, um, and so this year, uh, that particular year, the, the just plain I don't I don't even know what to call it. They, they became really it was paranoia. Um, Johan Brunel and Lance had asked uh, their one assistant, his name was, he went by Duffy. He had gotten all this equipment and he was convinced that, <laughs> I don't know what equip, where he got this stuff, maybe on the internet it was this weird looking detectors or I don't know, alien looking stuff that he'd carry around. <laughs> like he was looking for bugs in the rooms, he thought for sure that somebody was gonna, I don't know, plant a bug in the room and the police were watching us or something. And so that year, the first time we did it, the, they, um, they had us go into a room where they had, he had put plastic on the floor everywhere and on the walls. This is a team hotel. Yeah. <laughs> he had taped off every, every, uh, like every hole and any kind of vent or the smoke detector he had taken down and put tape over it. And the windows and everything. And you weren't allowed to talk when you went in the room. It, was, it really was weird. And I, certainly, what, the only thing I could think when I was in there was if somebody is going to come in here and see if we're doing something, they're going to know something's happening in this room because this is not normal. <laughs> There's stuff everywhere. I mean, it was clear that there was that whatever was going on in that room needed an explanation. Well, anyway, that was, that went fine, and then they decided they didn't, that, that wasn't even extreme enough, so they decided the second time we would do it, um, later in the race, they would just do it in the bus and have Duffy meet us halfway through the transfer after the stage. Um, on, and they would take a detour and then pretend the bus had broken down. And the thing about the tour is, it probably sounds like it was conspicuous from the outside what we were doing, but there's so much chaos going on. There's so many cars. I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people there at any given stage. And they've all got cars, and there's buses, and there's just, there's so much going on that if there's one bus on the side of the road, even if it says Postal Service on the side of it, most people aren't going to stop to figure it out because they've been sitting in traffic for who knows how long. So anyway, we picked a remote road where there really wasn't very much traffic. And we sat there for... Um, an hour. I mean, it doesn't take very long to do a blood transfusion. It, you can you can do it in 15 minutes on a particular guy. And when there's nine guys and two or three doctors doing it, you can the whole thing can be done in an hour. So we sat there for a while, and the mechanic, or I mean, the bus driver pretended to be working on the motor in the back. And if you took somebody that had never seen any of this and wasn't sort of eased into it, I guess it would have thought this was the most absurd thing you'd ever seen. But what, was, this, time, what was the scene in the bus? So there'd be some regular benches in the front, and then you'll have some long benches on each side in the back. And so there was a couple guys on each side laying down on the benches, and then the blood, they'd just tape the blood bag up 
higher than them and allowed gravity to let it run down. Lance was in the back, um, I remember, by the bathroom. And he was laying on the floor and... But, I mean, guys laying on the floor and, in the, and on the benches wasn't that out of the ordinary anyway because you're exhausted after a tour stage. So that's just the way it would normally look. You just wouldn't have a bunch of blood bags taped up. <laughs> I mean, I say this all matter-of-factly, and I know how stupid it sounds, but the fact is it just by that time, it's just the way it was. And as it was happening, we just accepted it. But, yeah, in hindsight, and when I would think about it afterwards, it did seem pretty ridiculous. If you don't mind, explain the benefits of blood doping? Well, for cycling and for for sports in general, there's really um, only a few ways to, in, to enhance your performance using using drugs or performance-enhancing substances, whatever we call them. And, and I guess you could put um, a blood transfusion in that same category. Um, there's a drug you can use to add red blood cells to increase, stimulate red blood cell production, and that's called EPO. And, and that drug has been detectable for some time uh, in large amounts. I mean, you can use relatively small amounts and still get a good effect, but it takes a long time. And so in a race like the Tour de France, where uh, typically uh, red blood cell volume, for whatever reason, comes down throughout the race because of stress and other things, um, it's helpful to add blood during the race. So what we would do is we would remove a couple units of blood, half a liter each, um, over time while leading up to the race and at the same time take some EPO to try to stimulate blood production um, quicker so that you get back to a level where you can train hard and recover from it. Um, and then during the race itself you would uh, re-inject the blood after after probably a week and then again a second time after another week. The result is an increased ability to um, deliver oxygen to your muscles from your lungs. It's a greatly exaggerated effect of training at altitude. I mean, it's been known for some time that training at high altitude is helpful, even for sea level events. Um, and the result of that is just more blood. And so what we would do is we would exaggerate that by just artificially manipulating it. And it's not very complicated. Um, all you have to do is store it in um, somewhere between zero and two degrees Celsius so it doesn't freeze and, and not keep it for too long because the blood cells do age in the bag uh, over time. But it's really quite simple. You said that Lance would talk to you about blood transfusions on training rides. What would you guys discuss with regards to performance-enhancing drugs? I had questions, and so I would talk to Lance about them on our rides in San Moritz. Um, and he was as knowledgeable as anybody, but the thing about cycling that probably doesn't come across is that, uh, come across to the public, is that drugs and, and the medical side of cycling is not one or two guys here and there here doing it over here and two guys doing it over there and winning races and and no one else knows what's going on. It's ubiquitous. It's everyone knows what's going on and everyone talks about it. Um, and so to me, it seems surprising that it was Lance Armstrong, but it just happened to be that way. That was the guy I was around as I was learning about it. Ultimately, five years later, I realized over time that. That's just the way it is, and people talk about it. It's not, it's not some sort of secret within the Peloton. How time-consuming and expensive was it? It's, it's expensive if you do it, if you want to do it right and not take any big risks. I mean, like even small things like where Lance asked me to stay at his apartment, you need people to help you. You can't always physically be doing everything, and you need sources for things. And if you want to take huge risks, you can go buy stuff on the internet. You can buy drugs on the internet. First of all, you don't know what you're getting, and second of all, there's a, there's a 
easily traceable trail of money and, and products, right? So if you want to pay more, you can take less risks. And so for fifty to eighty thousand dollars a year, you can probably take very little risks and get it done. Then what avenue did you like to go? I spent quite a bit of money. I spent about uh, eighty thousand bucks, I think. A year. In two thousand five and six, yeah. Okay. How much assistance did you have? Not a lot. I mean, I had uh, a couple people that would just physically deliver things or, or watch it for me, but I didn't have any any doctors that were giving me advice on how to do it. By that time, I more or less knew. And it, the tests don't change that quickly, that, that you'd be caught off guard by something. I just, I just needed to have people, and I, I paid them well because you don't want to stiff the guy that knows things about you like that. All right. Tell me about how you had blood delivered during the 05 tour to France. In, in 05, I... Uh, Autograph seeker or something? Oh, no, that was in, in 2006. 2006, yeah, okay. This, I did two blood transfusions in 2006. The second one I did, I was paranoid about having weird people walking into the hotel in and out. I mean, I just didn't want somebody to... If someone was watching, they could see if someone that hadn't been around had showed up. So I had the guy come with a just with a jersey asking for an autograph and when you finish a tour stage there's you know 50,000 people there and they, they all have access to you and uh, it's hard to pick out anything out of the ordinary there it's just chaos so I, I said I told him to wait at the finish on the right side and I went and he found me and he came with a jersey and he had a little uh, bag of blood but it was wrapped in a in, in like a just like it was a gift and it's not very big. I mean, the jersey pockets in the back, you can fit you can fit a half liter blood bag in there. It's about the maximum amount you can put in there, but it doesn't, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to be riding around with something in your pocket at that point. Um, so he came up and, and I asked for an autograph and then offered me a gift and I put it in my pocket and just rode back to the hotel with it. So we just did it right in front of everybody so it wouldn't look out of the ordinary. I mean, if you knew what it was, it would be out of the ordinary, but. There's a lot going on at the finish of a tour stage. No one could possibly pick out any anything strange there. What role did Lance's uh, training advisor, Dr. Ferrari, play in the use of illegal performance-enhancing drugs? He's the best that there is in, in cycling and at giving advice. At giving advice yeah, on what? Yeah, giving advice on how to go about doing it, how to avoid being detected. Um, he must have had sources within, within the anti-doping labs and, and other sources that would tell him how the tests worked because I often try to keep it secret. Um, but the things that we did were, were fairly well known anyway. We didn't do anything extremely exotic that I know of. If Lance did other things that we weren't doing, then I didn't certainly didn't know about it. But blood transfusions, for example, and, and things like that, they're really not that comp complex, but he was the guy you'd go to to ask him how to do it. He wouldn't physically show up at the tour by that time. There probably was a time in his career, in his life, when he did. But by this time, he had been investigated once in Italy, and he didn't want to be seeing around the team and things like that. So I know that the doctors and, and the riders had contact with him and gotten advice from him, but he didn't physically show up there and, and do this stuff. This was the doctors the team had hired. What about the role uh, Johan Bernil played? He would orchestrate the, the all of it director. between the doctors and the, and the riders and things like that. He liked to boast a lot of times about how he was actually the team doctor. But Really? Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, because he did. I mean, he was really knowledgeable about it. And, and like I say, there's... It's not highly scientific stuff. I mean, you just have to physically know the amounts you can use and what you can use and things like that. And he liked to be the guy that knew what was going on and liked to orchestrate it all. And he was good at it. I mean, he was, he's, he's a smart guy. He, he was a good director. What about Coach Chris Carmichael? 
Well, he was a complete smokescreen. He's not a coach at all. Lance, at some point, decided to create a, um, a business. And Lance was, a, if I understand it correctly, at least he or some of his friends had equity um, stakes in this Carmichael Training Systems, which is his coaching business. And so it served a couple purposes. In fact, um, it was well known that Dr. Ferrari had had at least questions and investigations um, into his um, giving advice for doping and cycling in the past. And so Lance didn't want to wanted to be seen as he was as Ferrari was his coach. So. Um, they created a business to make some money with Carmichael Training Systems, and at the same time, it just deflected the information away from from Ferrari being Lance's coach. But I can tell you that um, it was it didn't take me long to figure out that that Carmichael had nothing to do with coaching Lance. Um, nothing whatsoever. No, because the first few months that I spent um, training with Lance in Samaritz, you could check on on Chris Carmichael's uh, website to see what Lance had done that day, and I had physically spent the time with him. I knew what he did. I did what he did, and it was just fabricated. It wasn't even close. But he wasn't there. I mean, we never saw Chris Carmichael except maybe at the tour he would come with some of his clients. I would I would venture a guess that Carmichael talked to Lance once a month and not about training. He's not the coach. What about Lance's agent, Bill Stapleton? You know, I don't. I, I cross paths with him quite a bit um, here and there. Never had any really long conversations with him. Um, I talked to him about um, at the end of 2002 uh, when I was negotiating a contract contract for 2003 and 4 in his office about, it, and he, he let me know um, perfectly clearly that he understood what was going on in cycling with the doping, and he understood how much I had done and how much there was to go if I wanted to do it, and. It was his way of saying he knew how much potential I had at that point. But I, to me, he seemed more of a sinister character. I never really liked him, and I didn't really have that much reason to be around him too much. So I didn't, I didn't really spend a lot of time to getting to know him. After you were already on the Postal Service team, you made some negative comments to a reporter about UCI dealing with the fact that you still hadn't been paid from a team you raced on prior to the Postal Service team, the Mercury team. What did Lance say to you after that? The, um, the UCI was unhappy with a comment that I had made about it, which I still stand by the comment. I said that they hadn't followed their rules. They have a set of protocols they follow. If somebody's not paid, they have a, they have a sort of an insurance policy. They call it a bank guarantee that pays at least three months of your salary if, if a sponsor discontinues a team or if a team goes bankrupt or something. At least you have three months, right? Well, I couldn't get them to follow their own rules and pay the three months, so I made this comment when someone had asked about it. And rather than contact me about it, it was clear that the, the UCI president called Lance and called Johan and asked them to tell me to correct this situation. Why would they call Lance and Johan about it? At the time, I, it wasn't clear to me how much power those guys had with the UCI and what had transpired. I mean, I was still learning things at that, po at that point. But what I know now, it makes perfect sense. The easiest thing to do was to call them because they're all in it together. I mean, between Johan and Lance and and the UCI at that time, that, that's who ran cycling. And so why not just ask them to do it? They're my employer. I mean, it makes sense now. At the time, it seemed completely out of, out of the ordinary. And how surprising would that be that UCI, Lance, and Johan would be working together? Well, it, it runs completely contrary to what they claim to be doing. Which is uh, what? Well, the UCI claims to be the federation that runs cycling from a neutral standpoint and, and is there to promote races, a few races, and to, to enforce the rules. I mean, they're the, the governing body. 
So to have a vested interest with a, with a particular team and that particular team have the best rider in the world, and I mean, all of it is, is a conflict of interest. But So what did Lance say to you? He told me that he didn't, he understood that, it, that I might be telling the truth. He didn't really care about the details, I don't think. But he said, look, we're gonna need these guys at some point in the future, so you gotta, you're gonna have to apologize to Verbruggen. Mr. Verbruggen was the, the president at the time and retract your statement because if you don't, when we need these guys, they're not going to be there. Uh, Don Catlin, who ran UCLA's Olympic anti-doping lab for 25 years, what was his role in everything? Well, it's become evident now that, that he's been involved in some cover-ups of testosterone positives for Lance Armstrong, but um, the only relationship that I know for sure between them, uh, Armstrong and, and Don Catlin, is that uh, Don Catlin was allegedly going to conduct this, this um, anti-doping program for Armstrong in 2009, I believe, when he made his comeback. They announced it with, you know, at some sort of press conference and it was going to be the greatest anti-doping program ever, but within two or three months they just, I, I mean, one of the dumbest quotes I ever heard, Don Catlin said that they decided that something, sometimes when you try something so, so big and difficult, sometimes it's best to just quit, and that's what he said. The negotiations with Postal after Phonak offered you $500,000 a year contract or a five hundred thousand dollar contract. How did they go? Johan came to me at one point during the during the Tour de France and told me they would like to keep me on the team. This was two thousand four, and uh, my contract expired at the end of that year, and I didn't have any offers yet at that point. And so um, I said, "Well, I'm going to go find some other offers." And I really, in the back of my mind, I wanted to leave, but I didn't want to have a debate during the race. I just wanted to deal with it so I said I'm going to find some other offers and he said well we don't we don't this team's the best team in the world we don't match other teams offers we pay people what they're worth which didn't make any sense to me because I was always told what you're worth is what people will pay so he obviously had a different point of view he said okay well go find some offers and let me know what they are and so when I finally got some offers um, I got add a couple from some other teams and they were more or less the same amount of money um, I went back to him and I said because it, in the contract they had the right to match an offer right so I took it to him and he said well we didn't want to match it and so I said okay good then I'll leave and I got a bunch of calls I got a call from Lance at some point in the next few days and I got a call from Barton Eggs trying to tell me to stay and I said no I'm, I'm not going to stay and so finally Bill Stapleton I believe himself called me and said that they decided they want to match the offer and by this time my mind was made up I mean I did not want to stay so I told him well you'll you already waived the right to to match the offer. He told me he didn't want to, so I'm leaving. And then he got mad and he said, well, you know, you can't do that. That's what the contract says. You can't do it. And I didn't really want to pay a lawyer, so I said, well, all right, well, if you want to pay me half a million dollars to sit around and get fat for two years, that's fine, but I'm not going to train. I'll be happy to take the money. And then he got mad and he said, you can't do that. And I said, well, I thought I told you I don't want to stay. And he said, well, he said, well, what do you want? And I think I told him, I, I think I doubled it. I said, I want a million dollars. And then he got even more mad and he said, this is, this is bull And then he had Lance call me and tell me how disloyal I was and everything they had done for me and that I would be living on the streets and some long bull story. And eventually I, I just never talked to him again. But actually I did talk to him again f following that because, uh, well, on the same subject. The team, we weren't sure about whether Phonak was gonna continue. Uh, because of an incident with Tyler Hamilton that fall. And so they called me again and, and asked if I wanted to come back and I told him no again. And then they were even more mad than the first place. But anyway, I didn't talk to him after that for probably a year, 
probably a year. I mean, I raced beside Lance, didn't say a word. Not a to what extent did that incident, that situation, make you both enemies of each other? I guess you could say we're enemies of each other. He went out of his way, and he had his team go out of their way to, to damage my results when he wasn't there to win. Like, I remember a race at the Delphine, the race before the tour in 2005. What would they do? They would just make sure that I couldn't do anything. They would have their entire team work against my team to prevent me from having any opportunities. And you can do that in cycling. It's easy to prevent somebody from winning. Um, but I can't say I was an enemy of him. I really didn't care if, if he didn't like me. I didn't want to be his friend. I didn't feel like they owed me anything, but he certainly felt like I owed him something. So the way he behaved to me just seemed like a waste of time. I mean, it was upsetting. It wasn't like I was happy about it, but I didn't care for the guy. I didn't, it wasn't like I felt any sort of loss not being his friend. What's the likelihood Alberto Contador used illegal drugs in winning his Tour de France titles? I, I can't give you a, a statistical likelihood, but I know for sure that his coach is my pre previous drug dealer. What does that tell you? Well, I don't know. Maybe he found Jesus. Yeah, you can figure it out. <laughs> what about Greg LeMond, who won three Tour de France titles, most accomplished American cyclist other than Lance? He's, well, I know he's really outspoken about uh, about Lance and about drugs and things like that. I don't, uh, until very recently, I've not really gotten to know him well. And even now, I don't know him real well, but I, I've gotten to know him. Um, I know he's opinionated. I, I wasn't there. Um, but I know the drug culture and cycling predates him by some time. And so if he's, this is what I was trying to say, if he's the one guy that had that ability, then more power to him. I mean, he certainly he certainly must have been exposed to it when he was there. And if he didn't do it and he still won, then yeah, it's impressive. Uh, what's the likelihood a cyclist could win the Tour de France now without using illegal drugs? Or then? I, I don't, well, I don't know what the likelihood of anyone ever be able, being able to do it is even then, but I do know no one did it. I mean, I was there mm -hmm. and I know how many people have been caught and admitted to it in the last 25 years, so it hasn't happened. Um, but that's not to say there aren't, there aren't prodigies and, and people have, that have strange you know, abilities in, in life. They come from everywhere, right? They can play the piano when they're two or some crazy thing. Somebody, somebody might be able to do it. All I know for sure is no one has in a long time. And I, I just I don't want to foresee it. When you were racing, what percentage of the Peloton was using illegal performance-enhancing drugs? Oh, I can't know for sure. Um, I probably shouldn't guess, but enough that if you weren't doing it and you didn't know about it, I don't know where you came from because you must not be paying attention. What about among the elite cyclists in the Peloton? Enough that it, I'd never feel like I cheated somebody by winning, by doing it. How do you change it? How do you make it right? How do you make it fair? How do you make it, you know, genuine so, you know, it's not finding out from somebody who finally decides to speak. It's people know when they're watching it what they're seeing is really what they're seeing in the playing fields, what they expect the playing field to be. Life's not or, fair, man. I, I mean, or is that like saying, not fair. You know, telling a kid Look, there's no Santa Claus? No.
tough. Right, right, but I, I mean... Somebody wins here. Right, right, but I, I mean, you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, what's wrong with the system, the testing system. What changes can be made to well, correct the problem? I'll tell you where I would start. I don't know how you, I don't know how you stop athletes from using performance-enhancing drugs or breaking any other rule, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can have the body, that, the, the agency that enforces the rules apply the rules to everybody exactly the same way. And until you do that, nobody's going to respect the rules because if you start giving free passes to some people and not others and they find out about it, you don't have any authority to enforce rules at all and then there aren't any rules. So since you made the rules, you got to enforce them across the board. And it's, it can never be perfect, right? There can be all sorts of unforeseen circumstances. But if you clearly prejudice some people and give other people the benefit of the doubt, then then there are no rules. And until that happens, never going to get fixed. The likelihood any of this happens, no, in your opinion? It's not getting fixed. Never. And it's nothing, an investigation, whether one going on now or future investigation could potentially change? What that can change, and the purpose it does serve, is that people can now know what they're seeing. They'll know, they can still like cycling, they can still watch it for the beautiful scenery and the places they race and, and the drama that goes along with it. But what they need to understand is that it's not limited to what they're just seeing. The things that determine who wins are, are so many and so vast that do you really want to think about all that or do you just want to watch it for what it is, what you're seeing? Because that's good enough, isn't it? I mean, people watch sports not to complicate their lives, not to make them, not to cause them even more reason to wonder why the world isn't fair. They watch it because of the drama, and, and who cares why the guy won? But it seems like, you know, whether you're a professional athlete or somebody in any profession, if you get to a point where you've worked your whole life to get to this point, and it's clear that either you can find a new profession because you're going to be unable to have success unless you take a pill, or you can take a pill and continue the pursuit of your dream and make money for your family and doing what you love. You know, that's quite the dilemma. And I can certainly see me being in that situation saying, well, crap, you know, I've worked 20 years of my life to get to this point. I'm going to take the pill. Right. I mean, there's one, I would add one thing to that that you didn't mention, I'm sure you meant it, is that you know that the other guys are doing it. I, I think that if you put that scenario out there and say, here's a pill, but no one else has it, some people will probably feel guilty about it and not want to do it. Right. But if you know everyone Knowing, else is doing right. it, some people will come back with the stupid, if you know everyone jumped off a bridge, then would you do it? That's just a dumb thing. That doesn't make any sense. This is not that. This is, here are the rules that we all know. They're not the written rules, but there's a set of rules in our little world. These are the rules we play by. Right. And the goal would be to not have to put people in that position so they have to choose between morality and continuing the pursuit of their dreams. It would be nice there could be a level playing field absent the drugs or people doing things that could potentially harm themselves, but that's the governing body of cycling that that's up to. Well, yeah, we certainly have to start with them. I mean, when they're in on it, then, then there's no hope. You became the first Tour de France champion in the race's history to ultimately have your crown taken from you 
for doping. How did you find out? My team director at the time, his name was John Lalong, and he called on the phone and he told me he wanted to come talk to me. And it was it was in the morning, and I could hear in his voice that something was wrong. I knew it wasn't good, and I asked him what was going on, and he just said, "I, I have to come talk." And I think I knew in my mind at that time exactly what had happened. I mean, all I could think was that somebody tested positive on the team, and the worst case scenario it was me, but all I could hope for was that it wasn't me. Um, and he came upstairs and he just sat me down and he told me, but he didn't have any paperwork, he didn't have anything. He just said he'd gotten a phone call. What happened from there? I immediately knew that things were bad. I mean, I, I, didn't, I knew I didn't have any friends at the UCI I could call. I knew I didn't have any favors with Armstrong or anyone else that had any leverage there. So I think I just kind of went into shock. I went into like a cold sweat and I couldn't, from that point on for months, I just felt disconnected from everything. Everything that was happening was, was like, I'd just do whatever I could do to get through it. Whatever happened, happened. I had a press conference. I had, I tried to deal with the press. I tried to deal with my, my family, my mother, everyone I had to talk to. Everything that happened, it was just kind of, wasn't me. It was like a movie that happened. What do you mean, shock? Like It was too big for me to understand. It was too big for me to deal with. I knew I couldn't defend myself because I, I could say, I didn't do what this says I did, but I couldn't say, here's what I did do. So I, so I had to lie, right? I was being asked if I ever did anything. And but during that first conference call with reporters, you said you hadn't quite decided what you wanted to do yet. When they asked you if you'd used performance-enhancing drugs, you said, I'll say no. But it seemed like you almost wanted to tell the truth, but you said you just didn't have the strength to make the admission? No, I didn't because I couldn't, I, at that point I hadn't wrapped my head around what was actually happening. I couldn't, I guess all I could think at the time was if I say yes, I can never back out of that. So I have to say no because at least it gives me two options. I can keep saying no or I can say yes, but I don't know what I have to do. I don't know what I'm going to do here to be okay. I'm not, I don't feel okay. I'm not dealing with this well. I can't sleep at night. So I'm just going to keep saying no. I mean, I, I know it didn't sound very convincing because it wasn't true, but I didn't know what else to do. I, I was lost. When did Lance first call you after that? Uh, really quickly after that conference call, he called me and he said that I have to be more adamant about it. I have to be more direct. I have to say, if, when I'm asked if I've ever doped, I have to say absolutely not. And I said, okay. I mean, it was too late at that point because I had done the conference call and I didn't have any desire to do any more of those things. I did some more press stuff. I think I went on Larry King and um, a few other things, but by that time the damage was done. I mean, I think the reporters knew I wasn't telling the truth, but I, I didn't know what else to do. Why not ask Lance for help at that point when he called you? Well, because there, there was no way to fix it at this point. See, the only way the UCI and, and the anti-doping agencies or whoever is involved in the cover-up in the past could do anything about it was before anyone heard about it. If, they, okay. if they're going to take your side, they got to make it go away before it happens. Okay. Um, the only time I've seen that happen was with Lance, but that was with a different, that was with corticosteroids, and so there was a way out of that. They could say, well, he had an exemption. But with this, I just, I didn't see a way out, and he didn't offer any help, so I didn't, I didn't ask. To what extent did the U.S. anti-doping officials offer you some sort of a deal in 2007? Uh, they spoke with my lawyer at one point, and they told me that, they'd give me the least possible punishment if I could give them information on somebody bigger. And 
there's no inference you can make from that. I mean, there was no one bigger at the time, uh, apart from Lance. And so I know it had been their goal for a long time to get Lance, and I found it offensive. I found it as if, as if they didn't care whether I was guilty or not. They were just happy that they had a circumstance where they could leverage somebody else's life to get what they really wanted. I felt like I was the guy in the middle. And they're not a government agency. Government agencies can do that. Police forces, the FBI, they can give deals to criminals to get other criminals. This is not that. This is a contractual agreement I have with them. They're, they can't use that as blackmail against me to get someone else. Um, and that upset me a lot. I mean, the, things like that that happened along the way made me even more determined to fight because I didn't want to admit it and help them. That would make them look like they're actually doing their job when they're not. How else did you justify your legal battle that continued? I was fighting a, a fight against the anti-doping agencies because I thought they were wrong. They haven't done their job. They're, they're getting a random person here and there. The, the amount of positive tests that they get is directly in line with the expected false positive rate. Sure, most guys are doping. You get a false positive every thousand tests, and then you catch a guy that's actually doping, and some of them admit to it. That's not a system at all. That's a joke. And so I was mad at them. I was mad at cycling. But I couldn't. If I admit it, I'm done. If I admit to it, I'm helping the guys that I'm mad at to begin with because they didn't solve the problem. And then I'll never race again. So I'm stuck in the middle. But you weren't necessarily done. I mean, if you, after you won the tour and tested positive, if you just admitted it right then and there and accepted your two-year ban, to what extent yeah, do you how believe was, you how was come I gonna, back? The problem is, here's the, the, the questions that would have resulted from this. They say, did you ever take drugs or did you ever dope? And I would say, here's what I did. And they would say, where did you learn that? And I'd just say, I'm not going to answer that question. I mean, there's no way out for me because it all led to Lance. Once I tell the story about Lance, I'm not getting back into cycling. It's just not going to happen. So I don't get out of this line of questioning. It all leads back to him, right? They're going to say, did you dope? And I'm going to say, yes. They're going to say, when did you start? I'm going to say, on Phonak? No, I doped on the Postal Service team. Well, how did you get away with it without the doctors knowing? Well, I'm just smarter than everybody else. No, there's no way to answer the questions. It's an impossible situation. How many times did you run through the various situations? Oh, every day. That's head. all I did. I, all I did was try to think of a way out. I hated my life. I hated the way I felt. Not to mention, I, I couldn't think of a way to, to do it and make it look like I wasn't being just bitter and, and angry and doing it out of spite. Like, I got caught and I'm just going to teach these guys a lesson. All I could think at some point when I finally decided to come clean was, well, at least I paid the price for it. At least I served my suspension first. I didn't just do it to get out of something. You can't say I did it for a deal. I didn't get it. I didn't ask the government for anything. I didn't do anything. I told the truth and that's it. You can't point at me and say, well, he did it right away because he was mad at everyone else. That's what it was. There was always an argument for the other side. There was always a, a counter argument to say, well, look at him, he's just trying to make a point. There still is, but at least I went through what I had to go through first. Yeah, you can say you shouldn't have fought so hard, but I was mad at them too. I was mad that they didn't solve the problem. I mean, the problem exists because they didn't do their job when they were claiming that they did. Everybody's wrong. I was wrong, they're wrong, everyone's wrong. Only weeks after that 2006 Tour de France, your best friend, David Witt, commits suicide. How much did that resonate with you? at the time amid everything else that was going on? It didn't affect me like it would have if I was feeling well, if I was okay. It, uh, in fact, it didn't really affect me at all emotionally. I was so overwhelmed with what was going on that it was just something that I decided, well, this is one more thing I gotta deal with. I just deal with the, the practical parts of what I gotta do. I gotta help arrange a funeral. I gotta go see everybody and go through it, but it didn't. I couldn't take any more grief. I couldn't take any more pain. It didn't have any effect on me in that, in that way at all. And 
for years I never even really stopped to think about it. I just had to keep going. I felt kind of guilty about that, but I couldn't deal with any more pain. I couldn't think about it. You said that you believe your positive drug test played some role. Why do you feel that way? Because he was my biggest, really my biggest fan. He was the guy that encouraged me to always do it. And you, you can never attribute suicide or, or, or mental illness and depression to one thing. But you can rarely attribute a car crash to one thing either. I mean, even if the guy's drunk, you can't say that him swerving into a tree wasn't part of the reason. I mean, drunk people get home safely sometimes. Sometimes people with, with mental disease get through it, and sometimes they don't, but it's a combination of everything that's going on. So how you could eliminate that from the entire picture is, is beyond me. That's just the way I believe it to be. But you don't blame yourself in terms of having anything to do with that, right? No, I don't blame the decisions I made. I never could have foreseen it ending that way, and, and I, I wish he would have just given it some more time to try to accept it, but, but the, the circumstances in somebody's life are what lead them to make decisions like that, so how you could remove that is, I don't think you can. How depressed a person was he? To me, it didn't seem like he was. To me, he, was, he seemed like he, was, he had some anxiety in, in the months before the tour, um, but he was there when I won the night. We had, we had a party after the race, and he was there the next day, and he flew home with my daughter, and he seemed okay at that point. That was the last time I saw him. How would you best explain the role that he played in your life? He was my roommate at the time that I uh, was trying to figure out what to do with my racing career when I switched over to road racing, and he was the guy that encouraged me to do it the most, and I, I think that had it not been for him, I might not have even continued racing at that point. Um, and he was always there. He was the most generous guy if I needed something or a favor, he was always there, and I kind of feel like he, I certainly wasn't there for him after the tour, but I couldn't be. I, I didn't have any energy left to deal with it, and so I just didn't call him. I figured he was okay. He didn't say anything to me, so I never spoke to him again after the test got announced, but um, he was my best friend. I mean, I, it was a big loss for me. How much credit do you give him for encouraging you? to stay with cycling, and you just alluded to this briefly, when you were really giving it some serious consideration in terms of quitting at one point? At that time, he, he deserves all the credit. I mean, I really, he was the one guy that said, just keep going, and I couldn't afford to pay rent. He said, you can live here and just just keep training. You'll, you'll find a team. And so I think that I really, I regret the fact that, I guess I shouldn't say regret it, I'm, I'm sorry about the fact that he didn't get to feel the satisfaction of actually having me win the race. I think he, was, he must have been not feeling well even at that time. It didn't come across to me, but I always envisioned it being, envisioned him being as happy as I was when I, when I finally won, and I guess it wasn't that way. You said before if you had stopped to think about what had happened to him, after it happened, you would have just given up. Why do you say that? Because I was at the limit of what I could deal with. I can handle a lot of stress. You have to be able to deal with a lot of stress to be able to win the tour. It's three weeks long and there's a lot going on. But this was more stress than I could handle and, and add that on top of it. I mean, it's hard enough to deal with your best friend committing suicide with nothing else going on in your life. I've seen people go through it. It's not, it's not a simple thing to accept and deal with. And this was on top of having lost my entire career and, and my reputation. 
and being in a hopeless situation that I couldn't change, I couldn't, I just couldn't add that to it. When you finally had a chance to sit back and think about what happened with him, was there some sense of appreciation to be able to, you know, look at all the good times you shared together, whereas, you know, when it was actually going on, you were so caught up in everything else? You know, I haven't, to this day, really sat down and tried to appreciate those six or seven or eight years when I raced on the road. I can't, I'm not ready to think about it. Because all it reminds me of is what happened afterwards at the moment. Maybe someday I can, but I can't. I just can't do it. I want to do something else. You end up going to, the last question I have on this, the, the hospital with severe chest pains at some point. What did you think was going on? So many things happened within a month that, I mean, I won the tour and then I had this positive doping test announced and then I, then David committed suicide and then I had my hip replaced. I mean, I, there was no time to even stop and think. And so I guess when my chest started hurting, I figured maybe that was just how it was supposed to end. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't funny. I just, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I don't really, never really had medical issues where I have to go to the hospital and try to figure them out. When you found out you lost your case, it was over. You had lost. What did you do? Well, I lost a couple times. The first time I lost in the, in the I mean, first but, hearing. But the last time when it was, I mean, it was done. I took the, the, um, the trophy they gave me, this piece of artwork. For winning the Tour trophy, de France. Yeah, and just smashed it on the ground in front of my house. I don't know, I had been looking at the thing every day for months, every time I would walk past it, and I hated it. I'd learned to hate it. I was, that thing represented, I don't usually react and do things like that, but and this wasn't even just a reaction out of violence. It was just me getting rid of the thing. I just wanted it out of the house. I couldn't take it anymore. When did you begin to get out of that stage of depression? It's taken a long time. I've had good times and some bad times, and the bad times seem to be less and less, but I'm still dealing with it. I'm still trying to accept it. How great did it feel to finally be able to make the admission? It felt really good, and I, it, it, I guess the only thing that kept it from feeling better was the fact that I really have a, a lot of people that I loved and cared about that I hadn't ever told, and who probably believed that I hadn't done it. But those people needed, they needed a detailed description of what happened in order to understand. I couldn't just say, that was, what, that was part of what kept me from doing it for so long. This wasn't the thing where I could just say, here's what I did, and have people figure out why it happened that way. So I had a lot of people I needed to call, including my mom, and try to explain it to her, and that wasn't easy. So I know they say the truth will set you free, but sometimes it takes a while. How hard was that conversation with the mom? It was hard. I, wasn't, I didn't want to do that, but I didn't want to ever have to do it, but I did, did want to tell her the truth. I mean, I want my mom to know the truth, and so I guess it wasn't hard because she made it hard. She certainly would never she'll forgive me. I knew that. That was the worst part, is it was easy to tell her the truth, and I could have done it from the beginning, but I just didn't. How exciting is it now to be able to figure out the next phase of your life? It's good. I, I spent way too long just trying to 
figure out a way to reconcile myself with cycling and to try to help it and make it better. And then I, I don't, I finally just let go of it. I don't care anymore. I don't care what they do. I don't care if, I really don't care. I had to just let go. I can't be part of it anymore. It's not for me. Maybe someday I can go race a bicycle again or ride a bicycle and enjoy it, but I don't, I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to focus on something else where nothing's perfect, right? But I need to let that part go. It's bad for me. The question everybody always asks is looking back, what, if anything, would you have done differently? I would, I guess a few days after the tour when I was told about that positive test, I think I would have told the truth right then. Everything else, I'd do it all again. It was worth doing for winning the race. Really a pleasure. Thank you, man. Appreciate it, Graham. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.